Around the world, countries are planning to ban petrol and diesel cars in the near future. Norway in 2025, Denmark, India and Germany in 2030, Britain in 2035 and China and France in 2040. So what's to become of petrol stations when electric vehicles take over? Well, around the world, petrol stations are turning into EV charging stations. The classic urban petrol station, gas station, filling station. And they're slightly thinking about the future because over in the far corner, there is a rapid charger for electric vehicles. Royal Dutch Shell will launch electric vehicle charges at petrol stations in Singapore. And it's the first time the energy company is doing this in Southeast Asia. Business has picked up in recent months at this roadside stop north of Oslo in Norway due to the world's largest set of superchargers for electric cars. A brand new electric fueling station just opened today in Tacoma Park. It's the first one anywhere in the US. But that's not necessarily the case in Australia. Here, petrol stations are focusing on the future of convenience rather than electrification. Hello, I'm Zoe Ferguson, and on this Rear Vision, we take a look at the history of the Australian servo and how it evolved to be what it is today. Every day it's getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. In the mid-20th century, I think the motor car was arguably the most important agent of change, in a, and especially in our cities, in the way our cities were organised. So they changed patterns of leisure, they changed patterns of work. Graeme Davison is an Emeritus Professor of History at Monash University and author of the book Car Wars, How the Car Won Our Hearts and Conquered Our Cities. And I can remember at the end of the war, we lived in a relatively confined world. Um, our neighbourhood was a fairly circumscribed neighbourhood. My mother, who never drove, by the way, um, did all of the shopping on foot, our schooling, our church, all of the institutions that shaped our lives were in the local area. And then along came the car and suddenly our horizons widened and it changed everything from shopping to work um, to courtship. I mean, I, I grew up in an era when we used to talk about a girl, a nice girl in a distant suburb being GI, geographically impossible. Well, suddenly we, we got cars, um, the nice girls in distant suburbs got a bit narrower and uh, courtship patterns changed as well. Then, when fuel was low, it was time to fill up, and that meant a trip to the motor garage. The garage that my father went to was also the place that maintained his car. He was a, f a fellow that my father, who was a self-employed tradesman, knew very well, and you would line up out along the kerb, and there was a, a row of um, petrol bowsers, and you could choose whether you wanted Shell or Plume or Golden Fleece or any of the other brands of that era, and you... Um, asked for the tank to be filled and the attendant that came out of the garage usually with his hands uh, wiped his hands from the grease and he would um, pump the petrol pump by hand originally um, and you would fill a kind of glass reservoir on the top of the petrol bowser and then you would put the hose in the car and you would uh, activate the release valve and the pet petrol would go into the into the car um, pretty soon we got electric powered um, 
petrol bowsers, but I can still remember the days when it was all a hand operation. But it wasn't just about filling up the petrol. It was a one-stop shop. Really, in some ways, selling petrol was more a kind of an extension of the, of the role of the garage as in main, maintaining cars and repairing cars and, and, and possibly selling them. In 1949, when petrol rationing ended, the oil companies immediately saw an opportunity to extend their empire. And so in the 1950s, they imported the service station model from the United States. All at once you saw these newfangled uh, service stations springing up. Interestingly, in, in the suburb where I lived, um, next door to the kindergarten where I um, went as a child, there was an old farrier, you know, a fellow who was still making horseshoes and shoeing horses. Now, the farrier came down and the service station went up on the same corner site. Um, and they were really much flasher looking operations. The oil companies um, built their own, usually their own distinctive architecture and design. Uh, each of the oil companies had, of course, their own logos and their own kind of colour um, uh, schemes. So um, really the landscape began to change very rapidly when these new service stations began to appear. And for a while it seemed as though every corner uh, in the in the suburb was a target for the uh, oil companies to put their um, logos on. And much more than the old farrier businesses were lost as these service stations gained footholds in our communities. And what the oil companies were interested in, of course, was prime sites. And prime sites were nearly always corner sites which were accessible from you know, either street on the, the corner. And these, of course, were often actually already used by keen institutions like churches and I remember particularly a couple of my favourite cinemas went down because of course the advent of the service station coincided pretty much with the advent of television and it seemed for a while, we, we, it wasn't to be true, but it seemed for a while that the cinema would be rendered redundant by the advent of television so very often old cinemas were demolished to make way for service stations. It had a really decisive impact upon the landscape. Some people thought it was excessive and that it was a recipe for, for misery and ruin. The oil companies thought that it was, since the number of cars had grown by about treble the rate of the growth of service stations, they thought that there was nothing untoward about it. But this went beyond just one suburb or community. It was part of much larger societal change. You might call it this, the new kind of drive-in society. So it's one of a family of things that goes along with, with the motel, the drive-in picture theatre, and of course especially the, the big drive-in shopping centres. They arrived a bit more gradually. You know, we had smaller drive-in shopping centres designed in the 1950s, and then towards the end of the decade, you get the advent of the really big metropolitan shopping centres like, like Chadston in Melbourne and uh, some of the others in, in Sydney and Brisbane. The service station really was part of a, a kind of shift of attitudes in which the motorist was really persuaded that everything was accessible if you drove and you could drive in and the service could be made available to you almost without stepping out of your car. Over the following decades, Australia's reliance on cars increasingly grew. At the end of the Second World War, more people were walking or taking public transport to work by a large measure than were driving in cars. So probably only about uh, a fifth of the population owned cars in the late 40s. By the 50s, it had dropped 
to one in three, and by the 1970s it was approaching one in two. So you have a revolution in the pattern of uh, motor car ownership and the pattern of dependence upon driving. When I was a kid growing up, we had more than 25,000 service stations nationally pumping petrol on virtually every major intersection, certainly in suburban areas. And to put that into context, Australia had a population of around 13 million in 1973 when I was born, and that's one service station for every 520 people. Ashley Lang leads strategy at ACOM, a global infrastructure firm, and between 2012 and 2018, she led ACOM's oil and gas business across Australia and New Zealand. Growing up in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne in the 1970s, where actually much of the land was still horse paddocks and residential development was only commencing, my parents were amongst the first to come out for the new, new subdivisions in the late 60s. There were at least 10, maybe 15 petrol stations in my local area. The main street of my local suburb, which was actually really a village just at that time, had three petrol stations on it. Most of those were owned by the big brands, so Mobile, BP and what was then Ampol and Shell. There were a few independently owned ones, I recall, which were family run, um, many run and owned and operated by migrant families. One of the many migrant family petrol station owners at the time was a Greek family in suburban Melbourne. My parents migrated back in 1956 from Egypt, Greeks from Egypt. Um, they left the, the, the country then due to the war that was going on and ended up landing in Australia just by chance. Stavros Yalaridis is the CEO of the Motor Traders Association of New South Wales and his father bought his first petrol station in the early 1970s. The first petrol station was in, in, in an area called Kew and then we just kept growing and selling and, and buying and, and developing and, and actually at some stage we probably had run, ran three petrol stations at the same time. Stavros Yalaridi's father was a franchisee of Shell, allowing him to expand. And this was the result of the revolutionary transition to the single branded service station. Graeme Davison again. One of the objectives of the oil companies was, of course, to create brand loyalty. When you think about it, there is really no basic difference between the petrol that was dispensed from a golden fleece pump and an ampole pump. But nonetheless, what the oil companies wanted to do was to encourage the idea of, of a connection to that particular product. But it had much more to do with the kind of image that each of the oil companies tried to create. And this image was made recognisable from afar, with their distinct architecture, colour and logos, from Shell's gold and red to BP's green and gold. And the brands wanted to play on more than just the consumer's brand loyalty, but also their national loyalty. So brands like Golden Fleece, which of course denoted, this was H.C. Slee, which is an Australian company, and its main symbol was a, a Merino ram. That was meant to encourage a sense of loyalty to Australia, as, as with Ampol, compared with Shell, which of course was uh, Royal Dutch Shell, or Texaco or Caltex, which were American companies. So there was, there was some feeling around national loyalty as being a way of trying to encourage uh, brand loyalty as well. But 
at, at bottom, what each of these companies were offering was really remarkably similar. There was re relatively little real product differentiation. What you got was a, an expansion of brand differentiation. And these stations would have been open around the clock. In the mid-1950s, the drive-in lifestyle was accommodated for when service station hours were extended. But this, says Graham Davison, was a huge blow to independent proprietors. There was an expectation, of course, on the part of motorists that, um, that the service station should be, if not a 24-hour operation, at least open every day of the week. Once you went, embarked on the Sunday drive, um, it was highly embarrassing if you got stuck in the countryside with a, an empty tank. So the mentality arose that the service station should be available to you at all hours of the day or night. But uh, if the petrol station had to stay open all hours, then of course it placed a, a great uh, burden upon the operators, who were mostly family firms. They really didn't want to lose every day of the week in keeping their places open. The service station soon became a one-stop shop for the car and the consumer, whose every need was catered for at any time of the day. If we look back, in some ways we can think of the service station as being a forerunner of the convenience store of the, of the 7-Elevens and the many other places in which we can simply drive in and get a range of products. The range of products to begin with in the service station might have been quite small, but it, there was at least in the minds of those who designed it the uh, the possibility that the experience of motoring and of picking up our petrol might go along with picking up all sorts of other uh, products. I still regularly visit service station around Christmas time to get bags of ice. They're one of the things that have got nothing whatever to do with um, motoring really, have they? But they are a product that's now routinely offered in conjunction with the sale of petrol. In the late 1970s, self-service was introduced. No longer did the proprietor come out to serve you, but you had to fill up the tank yourself. However, Graeme Davison remembers when this was trialled in his local area. There was one in our neighbourhood which I went to on a, was on Christmas Day and for some reason or other the mechanism had failed and people were able to get free petrol. They were helping themselves. But Stavros Yalaridis remembers when it was introduced without any glitches and how people responded. This was a game changer, a disruptor in the industry because there were people and customers that were wanting to fill their own cars up and be fast because if you can understand in the small petrol station where you have small driveways, one or two serving and you've got four or five cars lined up for someone to come and serve you, it took some time. So the elderly were actually very happy about the service, but the impatient younger generation weren't. You're listening to Rear Vision with Zoe Ferguson on RN. As the future of cars looks increasingly electric, the viability of petrol stations relies on their adaptability. We're hearing about the history of the Australian servo and how it evolved to become what it is today. More petrol pumps meant more productivity and more money. And this came down to the architecture of the petrol station. Graeme Davison again. The design of these petrol stations, or service stations as they were called, um, really had come from the United States. They, they'd first been pioneered in America by the Texaco company in the 1930s, and then they 
were adopted by pretty much all of them. So the, the service station was like, um, the, the main building was like an island in a sea of concrete. Um, and then under a big awning, of course, you had the rows of, of uh, petrol pumps. And important in all of this was, of course, a shift from the idea that you were just selling petrol to the idea that you were actually selling service. And the employees, of course, now were kitted out in their own uniforms, often in American style with peaked hats and so on. A very different kind of style of operation from the very informal kind of one that we'd been used to with the old garages. But as productivity and sales rose, the sense of community fell. We lost the intimacy that we had with the older style of garage, where very often if it was an independent proprietor, he was uh, a member of the community. I mean, I remember that uh, the uh, garage that my dad went to, um, Varco's, Varco's were people that we knew socially as well as through business. So I don't know that we ever established the same thing because once once the, the service station arrived, it became a rather more anonymous business. Many businessmen would, of course, have a an account with a service station and they would establish some kind of a, a relationship there, but it wasn't nearly um, as intimate a relationship or a neighbourly relationship as the old-style garage. Stavros Yolarides remembers this well from one of the smaller service stations his father owned which had around 500 customers on monthly accounts. It was a bit of a headache because you had to chase them to get your money, but, I mean, that was the customer service you wanted to present, so they would come in, they'd be, because no-one was on credit cards at those days or, or cash, come in, get their fuel, buy a few things off the shelf and then, and then walk away and then get their, their account at the end of the, the month. Um, that's how most of the petrol stations are, at a personal level, uh, own operator, would, were actually operating, providing that service to the consumer. Compared to the 1970s, when there were more than 25,000 petrol stations around the country, there are far fewer today. Ashley Lang again. We have about 6,400 or so uh, service stations nationally, and you know that number is, is actually back in growth mode now, but um, very slow growth mode. So, for example, in New South Wales um, last year, I think we saw um, plans for between 30 and 50 uh, new petrol stations to come online. So what exactly happened to those thousands of petrol stations around Australia? There's thousands of uh, ghost, if you like, petrol stations out in rural areas right across Australia, actually, which is in contrast to what we've seen in metropolitan suburban areas. Because of location and land value in particular, those metropolitan sites, which are no longer petrol stations, have been redeveloped into some other use, whether it be commercial use or mixed-use commercial residential. Typically, in many rural locations, we haven't seen the same drivers for the redevelopment of those sites. The land value is typically low. The cost of probably just removing the infrastructure alone may actually be more than the value of the land. So we've either got clear blocks of land with no infrastructure and a fence around them as a former petrol station or we have some sites where there's still some infrastructure remaining rusting away. But petrol stations are still seen as prime real estate with the big brands paying top dollar to secure sites. BP paid Woolworths just under $2 billion actually for a bit over 500 sites back in December 2016. So that's one of the largest transactions that we've seen. But certainly there's been a lot of activity 
with petrol station buying and selling over the last four to five years. And there's often been smaller groups of sites offered up as a transaction, whether it be a group of four or five sites, sometimes maybe up to 20 or 30 sites. These can be sites that are getting bought as a portfolio by the major petroleum companies, but we've also seen some private equity firms and small groups of private investors actually looking at these types of properties as a means of investment. And I guess just to provide some context around the value of these sites, you know, in metropolitan areas across Australia, these sites we are selling from anywhere in the low millions, tens of millions actually, probably nudging up to close to 100 million for some, some large prime sites that I'm aware of in, in metropolitan areas. Ashley Lang believes such huge amounts are being paid because the future of petrol stations relies on the age-old premise of location, location, location. You know, when we think about the future of petrol stations themselves and, and what that might look like as we do begin to transition, albeit over the next few decades, from hydrocarbon-driven vehicles or our reliance upon hydrocarbon-driven vehicles rather to electric vehicles, these sites are still going to play a key role, you know, at least for the next 20, 30, maybe 40 years. The true value of these sites comes down to convenience, because today the most profitable item at a petrol station is not in fact the petrol itself. Where they make money is out of that retail store attached to it. And in fact, when we do market studies of how they're making their money, the biggest selling item is uh, 500 mil energy drinks. Behia Jafari is the CEO of Australia's Electric Vehicle Council. So really, these petrol stations are looking at how can we attract people to come and spend more time inside of the shop uh, and what other amenities can we give them? If people are going to look to spend more time charging an electric vehicle, can we add more restaurants? Can we add business centres, Wi-Fi? Uh, really, there is a every minute more that we can get them to spend with us, there's a chance for us to make more money. And that's why we've seen over the last maybe five, five to ten years, increasing presence of other types of retail and food experiences. We've seen BP recently enter into an agreement with David Jones um, to have a, a small, I think it's largely pre-prepared meals and maybe some other offerings uh, at some of the metropolitan uh, petrol stations. But we've seen this across the board. It's more than just the 7-Eleven type model where we have food convenience items being offered, actually now offering other things like the ability to drop off dry cleaning. My local 7-Eleven actually has a, a bank of Amazon lockers where you can pick up your Amazon goods if you did, weren't home when the delivery came and you can also drop things off to get returned. So it's a, it's a more diverse range of customer experiences being offered out of these sites, which makes sense because of the location um, of the sites. They are, I guess, by their nature, convenient. Despite having prime locations, Australian petrol stations aren't rushing to adopt electric vehicle charging ports because there aren't many EVs on our roads. Behia Jafari again. So last year in Australia, electric vehicles made up around 0.6% of new vehicles sold. When we compare that to the global average, that sits somewhere closer to around 4%. And then, of course, we have great leading countries, countries like Norway across, uh, and across Scandinavia, who are around... 60% of all new vehicles, or so a majority of the new vehicles being sold in their market being electric. Despite Australia's slow uptake of electric vehicles, Behia Jafari says there is a petrol station in regional Victoria that's adopted an EV charging port. 
This kind of public charging infrastructure will increase, and building charging ports at petrol stations is just one piece of the puzzle. If you think about how that decision gets made for a petrol station, it's how can we build the site where we can have a large tanker of fuel that a truck can come and fill up so that people can refuel their vehicles on a regular basis. That infrastructure need for electric vehicles is very different. It's a, do you have access to electricity at that site? And the answer is yes in a lot more places. Fast charging locations are already built, for instance, inside of shopping centres. You know, they're built in close to regional centres where there are you know, shops inside of regional towns. Uh, they're built increasingly close to places where people want to spend their time. And these really, it goes to that convenience that we talk about with electric vehicles of charging occurs where you are, as opposed to the model of you have to go somewhere in order to refuel your vehicle, which is what we have today. Stavros Yalaridis says the uncertainty about the future of transport and charging habits is making petrol station owners worried. There's a lot of speculation. The oil companies are becoming energy companies who are thinking, how can we do this transition? How are those big stations going to look like? Uh, I think that we don't really know how we're going to be charging the cars, the electric cars in the future, because technology is moving so fast that maybe the cars can self-charge in, in the near future. So they are concerned. My members are concerned. They are concerned of how they are going to survive. But Behia Jafari believes introducing cleaner technologies on these convenient and prime locations is a good place to start. They're already looking at people spending between around five to seven minutes inside of their station. So that's time spent both actually filling up their tank, but then also using the facilities, buying a few things. And so when it then comes to recharging an electric vehicle, they start looking at, well, how can we entertain people at our locations for about 10 to 15 minutes instead? And again, the key for them is a, how can we provide enough entertainment that has some monetary value to it? So people are doing things like spending more time having their lunch here after refueling their vehicle. Remembering there's a benefit there for them that once you start taking away things like smelly petrol and diesel and you know, oil and grease, they can actually be much nicer places to be spending a lot of time. So it's not like you're trying to get out as quickly as you can. A team in Western Australia is looking into this. Thomas Brownen is a professor at the University of Western Australia and director of the Renewable Energy Vehicle Lab project. I think the geography of WA is quite unique in Australia and probably uh, anywhere else in the world. We have to have a basic charging infrastructure uh, to allow people to travel. And that's not different to any of the petrol station infrastructure. You have to have petrol stations probably also every 100, every 200 kilometers. Uh, without that, people could not travel uh, interstate or longer distance in WA. So it's not something different that just specific to electric vehicles. It's just we have to have a, a basic infrastructure to start with. Thomas Brownen believes petrol stations are ideal locations because they already have all the infrastructure. They have security, they have, in most cases, small shops. So for them, the transition would be ideal. As a turning point looms for the Australian servo, fond memories of its past won't be forgotten. My sister and I would be in the back of the car and Dad would take the, the old Holden to the local petrol station. We wouldn't just be there to have the tank fueled up. It would be like a, a whole checking regime from being able to pull out the dipstick 
to check the oil and my sister and I always used to fight over who got to do that and doing various other vehicle checks. Whereas now fuel's really a, it's a grudge purchase. It's not something that we look forward to, to doing. But if we can do other things while we're there, then that's really the opportunity. And that's also what the oil companies have realised too and why we're seeing the diversification of customer experiences being offered. Ashley Lang, Director of Strategy Implementation at ACOM. You also heard from Graeme Davison, Emeritus Professor of History at Monash University and author of the book Car Wars, How the Car Won Our Hearts and Conquered Our Cities. And Stavros Yalaridis, CEO of the Motor Traders Association of New South Wales. Behia Jafari, CEO of Australia's Electric Vehicle Council. And Professor Thomas Brownen from the University of Western Australia, Director of the Renewable Energy Vehicle Lab Project. Sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Zoe Ferguson, and this is Rear Vision on RN.